Welcome to Deepen with Pastor Joby Martin. The Church of 1122 is a movement for all people to discover and deepen a relationship with Jesus Christ. And we're praying this message helps you deepen your relationship with Him. Now let's dive in. All right, so welcome back. Week two, Deepen Podcast. We're looking at If the Tomb is Empty, our... uh, your first book, Pastor Joby, and the sermon series we're in as a church. And last week, we talked about Mount Moriah and the story of Abraham and Isaac and Sarah, and we got into it, man. I was I was discipled for sure. Um, and so this week, we're on Mount Sinai, mountain number two. The question, so we, we talked about last week how each chapter starts with the mountain name and a question. And this week's question is, who tells you who you are, you or Jesus? So... Tell us why this title. Um, I think a part of it is the misunderstanding of the Ten Commandments. Um, if you'll notice, God calls Moses, go tell Pharaoh, let my people go. There is the Passover, the Exodus, they cross through the Red Sea. Moses climbs up onto the mountain. At this point, no law has been given yet, and God has redeemed his people. Mm. Oftentimes, especially good church-going folk, will allow the enemy to define them by the laws that they have broken. And what God says, first thing he tells Moses on the mountain, I am your God, you are my people. Not, I have given you a law in Egypt, I'm going to come back at the midterm, if you got a passing grade, then you get to graduate to be my people. But it goes the other way, that the, yeah, that the, the, the verdict comes before the evidence. So Moses... <laughs> Charles, <laughs> you're God. Imagine this. Why do you pick Moses? I think maybe. Well, let me let me say one thing. Whenever I'm doing something like this in an interview or podcast, whatever, somebody will ask me a question, and there'll be this pause. And Christy used to get really worried about me when there were these pregnant <laughs> pauses because everybody who's recording or videoing or whatever are thinking. Oh my gosh, he like when is he going to talk? And I've written now. I'm 52. I've written since I was 15. I have programmed my process of communicating to come either out of my head or my heart, and it literally travels down my finger, my arms to my fingers. When my fingers discover there is no keyboard, <laughs> it then echoes back and eventually makes it to my mouth. Used to drive Christy crazy when I was speaking. She would be like biting her fingernails, and I'm like, "Honey, I, I'm I'm gonna get there. Just give, give a it a minute for the process." <laughs> the bigger question for me is not why did the Lord choose Moses, but why on earth would He choose me? Because mm. I can I can look at Moses despite the fact that I can like read some of his mistakes in life, and like Moses was the most humble man on the planet. And the Lord did that. The Lord created circumstances that humbled Moses throughout the, mm-hmm. throughout the process of his life. So by the time he gets to 80 or 82, he's pretty well humbled, and the Lord can use him, which ought to tell us a lot about his crushing of us. But I don't know. I'm, people, you know, that we look at, why did the Lord choose Moses? Well, I, I, I want to turn that on me. Like, why would the Lord choose me? Because I know me, and like, if I compare me to Moses, the record's not really, you know, so... Sure. Yeah, and God's been at work in all things for the good of those that love him and are called according to his purpose, and Moses was. So where he was born, how he was saved, like physically saved, he was raised in Pharaoh's palace. So 
So think about this. God knows what his plan for Moses is, and Moses knows the garage code to Pharaoh's palace. He knows how it works. He knows how you address the Pharaoh. He knows all the customs. He That's how he's raised. And because God is so good, he even allows it that Moses' mom is his nanny. He works all that out. And then yet, Moses' humanity comes through. I mean, he kills a guy. And when he encounters the burning bush, when he gets this like irrevocable call in his life, he had been a shepherd, which is not a good job. Everybody thinks it's a good job because of the like Bible book story, you know, and Psalm 23 and stuff like that. It's not a good job, bro. You were, you were like the lowest of the low. And he's working for his father-in-law, and I bet he's thinking, well, what a wasted life. And little did he know that the Lord was preparing him for this this picture of the gospel, that God would use this man on behalf of God to free his people. So good. So you talk in this chapter about desert seasons. Moses leads his people out of slavery. They think they're going to the promised land. They end up in the desert. Um, And I think a part of the Christian life is some desert, sometimes in the desert. Jesus was in the desert. We see that. So what what do you tell the Christian that maybe feels I I feel like there's the desert where life is just not adding up for you whether it's a job or relationship and you can feel like you're in a desert. And then there's like a life or a, a season in the desert from a Christian circumstance where like maybe worship isn't hitting as hard, you're reading your Bible and you're just feeling like it's words on a page where at one point it used to come alive right off the page to you. What do you tell the Christian, the believer, if they feel like they're in a desert, that kind of desert? So the the reformers, um, they had some phrases that I think speak to this. When they talked about knowing Jesus, they didn't really use the like salvation terminology as much as they would say that this person has been seized by a greater affection. Hmm. I love that. Yeah, I love that. See, what can often happen in uh, modern or even postmodern thinking is is that we we can think that the gospel is practical, mm-hmm. and it is because hell is hot and forever is a long time. It's good to be saved <laughs> sure. so you don't burn in hell forever. <clears throat> but when we see him as beautiful and captivating, and we are seized by a greater affection, now we're talking about a different thing. Uh, last week we talked about this idea of pruning, Jesus talks about pruning in the context of abiding. And the whole pruning thing, a gardener doesn't only prune, but there's mortification and there's vivification. You tear out the things that are trying to tear you away from Jesus. The first thing I would ask you if you feel like your faith is dried up is what kind of sin are you putting up with in your life? That what, what weeds are choking out the life that God wants to grow in you? Because he wants to grow it in you. Mm-hmm. And that, that matters, man. It matters a bunch. <clears throat> and one of the things that we can do is get complacent with sin in our life, and it's on the slow burn death that is just rotting our relationship with the Lord. And then we equate vibrancy with the Lord as some like feelings that we've been chasing. So kill the sin that is trying to kill you. Don't pet it. Don't tame it. Don't make excuses for it. Root it out of your life. And the best way to root sin out of your life, 
the best way to get the weeds out of your yard is grow really healthy grass. Mm. So the reformers would call that vivification. What are you doing to stir your affections for Jesus? What kind of environments are you putting yourself in? Because that whole thing in, in the Gospel of John, when Jesus says, I am the vine, you are the branches, abide in me, and I will abide in you. That's a lot of environmental kind of talk. Are you putting yourself in the kind of environments that stir your affections for Jesus? And one of the best ways, I say this all the time, to deepen your relationship with Jesus is to help somebody else discover theirs. Mm -hmm. So where are you in the Great Commission? What are you doing to stir your heart's affections for the Lord? And what do you have in your life that is shrinking your heart for Jesus? Mm -hmm. Cut that out, dive into Because here's the promise. James says, he's speaking on behalf of the Lord. The promise of the Scripture is draw near to me, and I will draw near to you. Not might. I will mm. draw near to you. So I think you ask about the desert. <clears throat> Sometimes I think the Lord leads us through the valley of the shadow of death so that we will know that his rod and his staff comforts us and that he would never leave us. Because sometimes we get so dependent on the th things of this world for our own contentment, which leads mm -hmm. to complacency. Mm -hmm. And the Lord just says, no, 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 what you really need is a desperation for me. And uh, I think I've said it before, you know, sometimes I'm going through the, the mud of life and I raise my hand and I'm like, Lord, save me from this. And he's like, I got you, my son. Grabs me by the hand and just dips me down under it <laughs> until I feel like a drowning man that's longing for breath. And then he says, when you long for me like a drowning man longs for air, mm. that's what you really need. So it's, it's his grace and his goodness in our life that he would allow us in the valleys so that we could appreciate the mountaintops. That's good. I heard it preached before. I can't remember who it was. Um, and, and they were talking about that the Israelites needed the desert because they were free from slavery, but they weren't free indeed. And so can you talk a little about that? What does that mean? Why, why do sometimes we, we think, okay, we're out of freedom, but sometimes we still got a little bit of Egypt on us? <laughs> That's a good way to put it. Mm -hmm. I love the picture, and it is a picture of us. The Lord takes a nation of people. I'm in the camp that believe there are probably about 3 million Hebrews that came out of Egypt. Can I prove it? No, but I tend to think that's about what they had. And these aren't just people who had like been captured and enslaved. They were the grandchildren of the grandchildren of slaves. Mm. So the mindset is slavery. It's all they've ever known. There's meat put in their pot by slave masters, and that's just what feeds them. Mm -hmm. And all they know are the gods of Egypt. And it's a beautiful the way the Lord comes in and delivers his people. The first thing he does is disassemble and annihilate the gods that they have held as powerful mm -hmm. forever. It's also interesting that in looking at Moses, and I, I can... I can relate a little bit to him because he says, Lord, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh? And I'm gonna, you know, I'll be with you. And he says, Well, okay, well, I don't speak all that well. All right, I'm gonna give you, I'm gonna give you your, your brother Aaron. Okay, he's gonna go, he's gonna do your speaking. All right. Well, I still I don't know that I have okay, what's that in your hand? That's the question, bro. What is in your hand? Well, it's my rod. I am and God, the literally the deliverance of a nation of slaves happened with and I'm 
I'm holding my Bible here now. The rod that was in Moses's hand. So what is that? So the the deliverance of this slave people came through the proclamation out that came out of Moses's mouth. But the Lord didn't just bring his people out as slaves and all of a sudden stick them in a castle or a I don't know whatever you know pick your utopia. He then he then drags them. He does give them a chance first to go in and take the promised land he's already given given to him, which is theirs by deed. He has deeded the promised land to them. It was their job to experientially take possession of it, which had to do with do we believe that he will actually defeat those giants before us when we actually step foot in the river and go take that. So he's taking the mindset of a nation of slaves. And what is he doing with them? Well, he's transforming them into a kingdom of priests because our king is coming back. And we see this in Revelation. Our king is coming back to a kingdom of priests. So the the thing that the Lord is doing in us and to us and through us, sanctifying us, is taking us out of slavery, out of our flesh, out of Egypt, redeeming us, and then sanctifying us through this process of pulling us through the muck and through the desert and transforming both our hearts, circumcising our hearts, and opening the eyes of our mind to stop thinking like slaves and start start thinking like the priests in the kingdom that he declares us to be. So, good. so what good dad among us would give a good gift to his kid too early when they are so immature that they would ruin it. And the good gift we're talking about here is the promised land. And here's how we know they're not ready. While Moses is on Mount Sinai (laughs) receiving the law of God, Aaron and the Israelites are building a golden calf. And then when Moses comes down and even confronts them, Aaron's like, wasn't me. I don't know what happened, man. It was weird. There was a bonfire. We threw some gold in there, and then look what happened. (laughs) I mean, that if those people at that moment walk into the promised land, then the whole, I mean, they are not ready and they're going to ruin this good gift of God. Yeah, you you said a quote in your, um, in the book, God wants to transform a nation of slaves into a kingdom of priests. So he walks them out into the desert for what will be 40 years. And that, I mean, at face value, I kind of just read by that. And then when I went back to it, I'm like, this is actually crazy to think about. He wanted to transform a nation of slaves into a kingdom of priests, so he walks them into the desert. Correct. Mm-hmm. So a lot of times, we uh, like when we see the law of God, there's not just 10 laws. There's over 600 laws that are going to come in Exodus 20 and following. And a big part of what church people don't think about, this was a nation of slaves. They do not know how to interact with one another. Mm-hmm. All they do is wake up. They're told what to do. They're beaten. They go to bed. That's what they do. Now... What do you do if somebody steals your goat? <laughs> and we're in charge of figuring that out. And God says, here's what you do. And, and even some laws that we see now and we see it as archaic, they are as compared to the law of love in the New Testament, but as compared to the law of slavery in the Old Testament, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, the law of retribution is so that if you just poke me in the eye, my response is not to cut your head off. Mm. They're just trying to lay a foundational, this is how humanity, this is how my people are going to get along with one another. And again, not until you are ready. Look, man, JP turned 16 this past year. We gave him the keys to a car. 
We have not yet given Reagan keys to a car. She's 12, he's 16. We believe there's lots of things that need to happen in those four years for them to be ready for that kind of responsibility. And before God is going to give the keys of the nation of Israel to his people, there's a whole lot of burning away of idolatry that needs to happen. There's a whole lot of slave mentality that's got to go away and sonship mentality has to take over so that they can then step into what God has called them into. So for us, because all the while, in a transformation from slave to kingdom of priests, they are still God's people. Correct. And so in, in our, it makes me think now, if someone is walking through a desert season, maybe they are transforming from a slave to whatever it is, to the kingdom of, they have not yet, is it possible that they have not yet walked into the priesthood that, that God has called them to be? Of course, they're still a son or a daughter. That doesn't change because that is, we get the verdict before the evidence. <clears throat> yeah, but if you don't know it, then you're living like a slave regardless of right. your status. So let's go Luke 15, prodigal son comes to his dad. So I need you to see this. He is Israel, mm. and he is us, and Israel is us. So when we're talking about Israel in the desert, we ain't talking about Israel in it. We're talking about me. Sure. We're talking about you. This kid goes to his dad. It's like, you're dead to me. You're dead to me. It's similar to what the Israelites said. Moses, why'd you bring us out here, man? We had food to eat there. That was better than this. Moses is like, are you crazy? You're going to the promised land. God is with us now. You get to see him every day, pillar of fire, pillar of smoke. We have a tabernacle, like we're with God. And Israel's are like, man, forget God. There's something out there that we think is better. We want to go back and be slaves. That's what the prodigal does. He goes, mm -hmm. goes real good, man, for minutes. Because <laughs> <laughs> rebellion feels good. Freedom feels good. But when you rebel against the one true God, it, it feels like freedom at first and fun. It always leads to death and bondage. That's right. So he finds himself in a pit. He finds himself feeding pigs. It's the worst thing you could do as a Jewish boy. It's worse. And the father allows him because, it's the, because he, doesn't, he doesn't know what he has. And the father can't just like, for whatever reason, it ain't working at home. He allows him to go through that season of his life. And there's one little line that few people notice in Luke 15, and it says, and no one did anything for him. Mm. And so the dad does not go and fix his problems because his problem is not that he's feeding pigs. His problem is that he doesn't know he's a son. Mm. There's only one way for him to figure it out. And then I love it. The NIV says, and he came to his senses. Amen. So God will allow us to walk through whatever desert That's we right, walk yeah. through to burn away all the stuff so that we can come to our senses. And even, now here's where the sonship stuff really kicks back in. And even when he comes back, he comes back. If you look at his apology, he's mm -hmm. asking to be a servant. Right. He's not reclaiming his sonship. <clears throat> he's like, um, I can work it off. That's right. the misunderstanding. I can of, earn my way back. That's it. Like, because that's what he says when he looks, he's like, my dad's servants are eating better than this. Maybe I'll go try to be one of those. But that's not what his dad does. His dad sees him from a long ways off. Robe of righteousness around him, that's imputed righteousness. He reclaims him with a signet ring and he gives him shoes. So in ancient times, um, servants didn't get shoes, only sons got shoes. Mm -hmm. Then he throws them a party. Mm -hmm. 
That's Exodus. Mm. That's Exodus. But the, if his dad went and got him too soon, he would not be ready to be the mm. son that he is. He'd still be acting like a servant, returning to the pig food over and over and over, like the Israelites wanted to return to the food that they had in Egypt. Right. So good. So before we get to, to the crescendo, Moses on the mountain and the Ten Commandments, can we talk about Aaron for a second? Last week we talked about Sarah and, and her part she played and the significance of it. So when we think about Moses and the Ten Commandments and all of, really, all of the Exodus, what is Aaron's role? What is his significance in this story? And, and how does it relate to today or someone reading it today? Yeah, we need more errands in the world, right? We need more. Actually, the church is full of errands. Everybody thinks they want to be like the guy in charge with all the responsibility, but Moses, I think, would be the first to tell you, unless I have some people to help hold up my arms, the battle ain't going to go the way it's supposed to go. And so God often does a thing, leads a mission. He anoints a man, builds a team around him, and then they go. But the team around him, matters like crazy. We ain't talking about Moses if Aaron doesn't have the humility and the gifting that complimented Moses to say, hey man, the glory of God is our goal. I'll play whatever role that that I'm asked to play because what I'm a part of is so much bigger than the part I get to play. Mm-hmm. And that's the key. That's good. Oh, you're looking at me. I guess that's my turn. <laughs> I, I I love what is it the first three miracles out of the ten was that did they occur at the hand of Aaron? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it, there's an argument to be made that deliverance doesn't happen without Aaron. According mm-hmm. to Scripture, it did happen with him. And also, you know, two are better than one. One falls down, you know, that whole thing. I love the story. Of course, they go through the whole. I mean, they it, it, it's arguable that Moses and Aaron saw more in terms of the acts of God on this planet than any other duo in the history of duos. And I would love to have been a fly on the wall in some of their conversations, especially late in his life, when God tells Moses, walk your brother up this mountain because I'm going to take him home. And I I write about this, but I I would like to know. Maybe one of these days when I get to heaven, I'll get to ask him this question, but I would love to know that whole conversation that occurred between those two guys who loved each other mm-hmm. and loved the father and they made mistakes, but they walked in obedience. I mean, the proof is in the pudding. The people were delivered. They did make it out of the desert. Now, Moses and Aaron didn't, mm-hmm. but they still walked them through it. They still walked with God. Um, I don't know, just this thought that Aaron served Moses, but more importantly, Aaron served the Lord. Mm-hmm. And the two of them walked together, and I just would have loved to have heard the conversation when they're, they're about to, you know, go home, and they're locked arm in arm and walking up that hill, and, mm. hey, I'm sorry about this. I'm sorry about mm. that. You remember when? Yeah, you remember the look on Pharaoh's face when you told him that? And <laughs> Think of what they saw. Yeah, sure. And had they not been obedient, they would not have seen that. That's really good. So before we get into some specific commandment questions. Just big picture. And let's imagine for a little, like what was it like for Moses at the top of the mountain receiving the Ten Commandments? 
Well, <clears throat> the book of Hebrews talks about it, man. There's this tempest. There is, it, it was fear and trembling. We know God in a more intimate way than those in the Old Testament were afforded because of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. Right. So after Mount Sinai, there's a time where Moses says, God, show me your glory. Mm-hmm. And he goes, you can't. If you see my glory, you're dead. You're dead, okay? Why? Because the lamb has not been slain for the forgiveness mm-hmm. of all sin. Now, Peter, James, John saw the face of God. They saw the glory of Jesus. They're on the mountain of transfiguration, which we'll get to, and they're not burnt up, okay? So even though the setting, I mean, think about this. The people at the bottom of the mountain can see what is happening at the top of the mountain with the presence of God. I mean, there's lightning, there's thunder, there's wind, there's it's intense, and there's an invitation from God, and the people are like, we're not going up there. Moses, why don't you go on our behalf? <laughs> That's what happens. Okay. It's a warning for church folk. There are some people sometimes that like step into church and think that that's still the invitation of God. Like, you people stay there and the holy man come up here. But the good news of the gospel is that Jesus came down the mountain on a rescue mission for us. That's what Hebrews is talking about. When it describes this tempest, the point is not that you would be intimidated by it. It would be that you're invited into a face-to-face relationship with the one that scared everybody to death, but then he was born as a baby in a manger and is your savior and is your friend. Those two things are happening simultaneously. And then again, before God gives the first commandment, he makes a declaration. I am your God, you are my people. It's it's not a, if you can accomplish this, then you can be my people, which is really, really important. You compare it in, in the book, the verdict comes before the evidence. But why is that hard for us? Because everything we do is measured. Every test you take has a grade. There's a class rank. You're trying to graduate to get into a thing. And if you're trying to get into something, that means that other people are not getting in. And it's all based on our performance. Every team you've ever tried out for. That This is, I mean, honestly, as much as I am into chore lists and all of that, the chore list you grew up with everybody's plays their part in their house. I get all that. But it just reaffirms this thing that my activity is my contribution to this planet. And it's really interesting. In Ex- if you take this all the way back to Exodus 3, <clears throat> when God calls Moses, and Moses gives the excuses that you were talking about. And one of the things Moses says is, if they ask me who sent me, who shall I say sent me? And he says, <laughs> God says, Yahweh which in English is translated, I am that I am. That's God's covenant name. Not, I am what I do. Mm. But I am who I am. And God is calling us into that being. And our doing should be a response to us being with Him. Everything in this world teaches us the opposite of that. Mm that who you are is what you do. If we think like our enemy for just a second, the enemy knows, the enemy to some extent knows our identity better than we do. 
because he was cast down like lightning mm. and he's seen the father. And so he knows who we are. We're image bearers. He's reminded of who we are every time he looks at us. And he understands our identity far better than we do. So if we think like our enemy for a minute, and this is a fallen world where he has been given some measure of authority and power mm -hmm. over what happens to us. If I'm him, I'm going to create a world in which everything that you experience reinforces the fact that your identity is somehow tied to your performance. Mm -hmm. And I will give you my acceptance if you perform at such and such a level. Well, the Lord doesn't do that. He's not. So the enemy reinforces it. I grew up, we all of us grew up playing sports, but I did too. And I can see this in my own, you know, football for me was a big idol. But one of the things it did for me was it taught me if I get faster, if I get stronger, if I get bigger, if I get meaner, whatever, mm -hmm. then I get to play. And it was a long time, probably my 20s or something, before the Lord unpacked that with me. And I got to just sort of sit and rest and kind of know his presence and have a better understanding of me in relation to resting in his presence. So I pay very close attention to this with my son and my daughter. But just because of their ages right now, JP's 16 years old, starting safety for the football team, varsity football team, Currently, because it's spring, he's on the weightlifting team. He just won a couple of weightlifting competitions, and I'm so proud of him. But when I tell him I'm proud of him, I even try to be careful of what I'm proud of. Mm -hmm. Like, I'm glad that he won. It's cool, man. He won. He was like the pound for pound, one of the strongest kids, too. That's cool. So he won. But what I try to, I try to not just be like, hey, man, I'm proud of you. Way to go. Like, you performed well, therefore. Where do you want to go eat? I don't want to do that. I just want to say, man, I love watching you compete. Yeah. I love the tenacity. It is a hard thing to do snatches and clean and jerk and all that at 6.30 a.m. When everybody else is sleeping, you're doing hard things. You know what I mean? Because yeah. I'm trying to get to like his character and who sure. he is, those kind of things. Okay. Now, I know a story about football and your dad and identity. Will you share that? Oh, yeah. We're going to go there right now, huh? Oh, we're doing it. <laughs> Because I don't know the story, and I want to know the story. I've, never, I've known him for a long time. I just heard it the other day, so this is good stuff. Football was a big thing. Idol, I played high school football here in in, uh, in Jacksonville or down in Jacksonville. I played high school football with a couple of Street and Smiths and ESPN top 25 folks, and they were phenomenal. So we always had Division One coaches, Lou Holtz and a whole bunch of other people, you know, visiting our campus. And all I wanted to do was play Division One football somehow because – my dad had grown up in Texas, like the beginning of Friday Night Lights, and he had played junior college, and then he'd gotten noticed. And he was invited on a football scholarship to play football at the University of Florida, which is why I grew up in Florida. Dad comes to Florida, starts four years, or plays four years, center and linebacker at Florida. So I grew up with these pictures, black and white pictures of my dad, you know, in Jersey and his number. And so I grow up, some of my earliest pictures are me in a football helmet holding a football or playing catch with my dad. And this thing, you know, like all of us, I was just one of those kids. It became a thing where I just, so by the time I get to my, about my junior year in high school, all I can think of is playing on Saturday. It just, and it was, yes, I wanted to please my dad, but it was something that we had done together. It was something that we shared. And our conversations went around it. And he never made me feel like, in order for me to be proud of you, you've got to do this. It was a thing that we 
We just loved together. We loved talking about the games afterward. We'd talk back through, you know, defenses and coverages and this block and when I got cracked and get, you know, all whatever. <laughs> and so finally, Georgia Tech comes to re, um, recruit a buddy of mine who was a phenomenal athlete. And I was a good friend of his. And in honesty, they probably asked me to walk on because they thought if they got me, they might also get him in the deal. And it, so they didn't That's get him. Gospel. Right. They, <laughs> they, thank you. Can you just leave it at they, that, right? <laughs> They did not get him, but they did get me. And I show up, and I, I'm a, I'm a, I got a firm hold on fifth string as a walk on. I make it through the whole fall, and look, I did some fun things, and I had some great times, and I improved and got better, and you know, got some accolades and all that. But the truth of the matter is, is I, I just wasn't big enough, strong enough, fast enough. But I, I did improve. We make it through fall. My dad and I get to share this. This is pre-cell phone, so I'd call him from the payphone in the hall for my dorm and after practice and kind of unpack it. And this was just a thing that we shared. Mm-hmm. And then we get to spring football. And uh, I-, I went in with a group of guys that the next year would win the national championship. So I got to see Division One football at a really high level. Mm-hmm. And I- I- we were sideline drills and... I hit a guy that uh, would later spend some time in the league. And when I hit him, I cracked L5 in my vertebrae. And I felt it and I heard it. And I remember laying on the grass in a lot of pain thinking, that's it. It's over. My dream's done. But the next thought I had, I got I to gotta call my dad. And I didn't, I didn't know how to make the phone call. Appreciate you asking me this question. <laughs> Thanks, buddy. And so I make it through the day. I make it through the x-rays. I can see the crack. My dream is gone. I got nothing. I don't even know who I am. I'm serious. I would later get in a fight with five guys at the Tallahassee Mall because I don't know who I am. That afternoon, I finally pick up the phone in the hall. I can still see it, payphone. And I call my dad. And uh, all I can say is, Dad, I can't play football anymore because I hit somebody today and I I cracked a bone in my back and I'm having trouble walking. The first words out of his mouth were, I can leave right now and come get you. You're my son. I don't care if you play football. I love football, but I don't care. And he literally said that to me. He said, I don't care if you play football. And the thing that it did for me is it, it it was like an identity I had wrapped myself in. And when he said that to me, it was literally as if he just undressed me and took that cloak and hung it up. And he was like locking arms with me, walking into, okay, well, then what's the, what's the next thing we're going to do? And we'll just go do it together. But he helped me walk in freedom trying to figure out who I am. And I, I, I didn't know, but I knew we could kind of figure it out. And I didn't feel shame. I didn't feel condemnation. I didn't feel regret. Of course, I wanted to play. But it was a beautiful thing that my dad did that allowed me to walk in some freedom that I am positive I would not have had otherwise. So God hears the cry of his people 
and even in fields towards his people as slaves in Egypt. Even more of a father's love than your dad has the capacity to feel for you. And then a part of the reason that by the time the Hebrew people are running the religious system in Jerusalem, they can't see Jesus for who he really is is because they put on a new identity, not of slave, but they put it on this religious identity and they had identified themselves by the law of Moses instead of understanding that the law of Moses was a gift to them mm. for them to understand that they need a savior. Which so is crazy. Let me which is crazy. When you look at the words of Jesus starting at age twelve, he's standing probably on the southern steps of the temple where all the religious leaders would come and gather. It's Passover. Mary and Joseph have come with everybody, and the Passover is now over. They leave Jerusalem. They walk down because it's obviously the highest point. They get a day's journey outside. They realize, hey, do you have him? No, you got him? No. And they realize they've just left their son, the son of God, mind you, inside Jerusalem, which ought to really help you as a parent if you've ever forgotten your children anywhere. <laughs> I'm speaking from experience. I'm sorry, Reeves. Um, and then they come back and they find him, and he's arguing with all of these religious elites and they can't hold a candle to him and if she says mary says to him she says did you not know that and she's pulling her hair out did you not know that we're worried about you and he's and in jesus just he says well did you not know that i must be in my father's house it's the first time a rabbi has ever said this about god most high because according to leviticus you're not allowed to call him father and yet jesus comes on the scene and over the course of his ministry, we see in the scriptures over 189 times, Jesus refers to God as Father. It is the single greatest revelation in scripture that we have out of the mouth of Jesus regarding his, his dad. And he, he invites us to call him. He says, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. It's the reason he comes to take us by the hand, pay our price, our debt we can't pay, and then lead us by the hand back up to his father. So it's, a, it's an identity that he wraps us in, that you're a son, this is your father, let me walk you up to him. So good. Well, I feel like we could just end right there. <laughs> Charles getting us all stirred up. So I love this. I love... The identity, the we're called beloved, be loved. Mm -hmm. And that always precedes activity. And then we get the Ten Commandments. And so what is that? How do we, we, we got the identity, then we get the Ten Commandments. And I know there's more, but we get these ten. Yeah. So what, why? What is, what did they show us? So it's, it's parallel tracks. It's multi-layered truth coming at you, okay? So first he does. He's, you're my people, I'm your God, but you're going to do this. Notice they're not suggestions. This is just what you will do. The multi-layer tracks are, <clears throat> I'm going to lay out for you this map of what it looks to live rightly with me and rightly with one another. The first three are about our vertical relationship with God. Five through 10 are about our horizontal relationships with one another. Number four, the Sabbath is the hinge commandment because you can't rightly love others if you're not beloved by God, mm -hmm. okay? So it is. Partly that. Here's how it is for you individually to live rightly with God. Here's also as a nation how you're going to live with one another so you don't kill each other, right? right? <laughs> and, and simultaneously, 
it's a mirror to hold up to your face to say, there's a problem here. I can't pull this off. The command, the command is be holy for I am holy. All right, God, what does it look like to be holy? All right, well, one God, no idols, watch your mouth, Sabbath, <laughs> obey your parents, don't murder, no adultery, don't steal, don't lie, don't covet. And you go, uh-oh. So we find out that the law <laughs> is not only a map to see how we rightly live with God, it's also a mirror for us to realize there's a real problem. It is the diagnosis that we need someone to do for us what we can't do for us. If this is the requirement to be in right relationship with God, there's a major, major problem, and the problem is me. And they're parallel tracks. If you try to divorce one from the other, you're in real trouble. Mm-hmm. So what some New Testament folks try to do will be like, well, the law doesn't matter at all anymore. No, 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 no. Jesus actually says it matters more than it mattered in the Old Testament. Because I say to you, you've heard it said, don't murder. I'm telling you, if you even hate somebody in your heart, this is a heart issue, not just an action issue. Okay? The way we love one another matters like crazy. The other side of that is people will say, no, 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 I'm a a pretty good person because I obey the law. And... You would look at that and be like, I don't, you're not reading it right. Mm. There's no way. Like, if you think you do, then you're, even your righteous deeds, even the day that you do love your neighbor and the day you do get up and do your quiet time and the day that you do put away anger and you present that unto the Lord as your righteousness, they're like, they're offensive to him. It's like filthy rags mm. to him. And so this is what the law does for us. It is a really, really, beautiful gift of guardrails on how to live and a diagnosis that we have a sin problem. The whole thing about be holy as I am holy, I know that maybe in the past we've been beat up and beat over the head with folks you know, smacking us with Scripture saying be holy as if somehow we can do that in and of ourselves. But it's a the reason, and Peter picks this up later, the reason is because it is the, it is the invitation and we see this in when Paul writes the Ephesians, the very first thing he says, blessed be God, the Father of our Lord, and I'm reading this, by the way, blessed be God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenlies, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. It's like, the, it's like when the Lord takes us to the Father, in order for us to be in his presence, we have to be holy and blameless, which is what shed blood of Jesus does for us. But it's the thing that allows us to play in the playground of the Lord. Mm-hmm. The entrance into the kingdom is, like, is repentance. But once you're in there, we're, we're draped in his holiness. And it's, the, it's the thing that allows us to swim in the pool. It's the thing that lets it get to be so good. Mm. So, the, I don't know, I just... I, I, Paul had a revelation when he's writing Ephesians, and I don't pretend to understand all of it, but I think Paul had an understanding of what it meant to be holy and blameless, not as some guilt-driven thing. It's not a don't do, it's a get to. Hmm. When I was young, one of my favorite comedians was Mike Warnke, and he used to have this thing where he would talk about the Ten Commandments, and he would say, look, I think we got this backwards. It's not the don't do's. I mean, yes, he's telling you not to do something, but if you look at what he's really saying, he's saying, if you don't do this, then you get to be in my presence. Mm. Then you get to be my people. Yeah, there's actually so much freedom in it. But what people can see on face value is restriction, rules, 
suppression. But it's like, no, there's actually massive freedom in this. Yeah. The creator of the universe knows best how this life ought to be lived. Right. And though I say it all the time, we don't follow Jesus because he makes life better, but we follow him because he's better than life. Yeah. Although, as a caveat to that, if you do life his way, it tends to go better. Right. If you only sleep with your spouse, better. If you don't steal, better. If you don't lie, better. If you don't <laughs> covet, better. All those things are better. Sure. But the problem, the weakness of the law, is it has no power to change the human heart. I think in the book we share the example of when Reagan broke her elbow. Mm-hmm. And we had to go get the this. the X-ray of it. Yeah, it's good. And I dis- I still to this day despise the X-ray. Mm-hmm. And it it for sure diagnoses. Man, she broke it right on the elbow, right in the growth plate. She had had oh. pins put in. She never even cried. She's the toughest Martin. It's not even close. Love that girl. <clears throat> and all that X-ray could do is point out that there's a problem that needs to be fixed. If we took ten thousand X-rays, right. nothing would change in her arm. And so the law is powerless to change the human heart. So Paul in Romans 3 will say, for by works of the law, no one will be declared righteous. That's what he's saying. It's the diagnosis. Mm -hmm. It's like a speed limit. Part of the reason God gives us the law is so that we would know that we're sinners. How do you know that you've sinned if there's not a list of what sins are, you know? Mm -hmm. So... We have a speed limit. How do you know you're speeding? It doesn't just say drive safe. It just had a suggestion. Drive safe. Some of you would drive 140, and some of you would drive 40 in the fast lane while you're putting on your makeup on your cell phone, okay? And you'd be like, I feel kind of safe. All right. So we that, that speed limit sets the, the guardrails that if we're over this, we're outside of the law. This is what the law does for the believer. Paul calls it like a nanny. Like a kindergarten teacher is is like the, what the Greek means mm-hmm. there, to show us so that we hold up the map. This is what it looks like to live rightly with God, to be holy because He is holy, and the mirror for us to go. Uh oh, there's a real problem here, and the problem sure. is me, and something has to happen. I'd like to talk about the fourth commandment a little bit more in depth. Maybe this is coming from personal conviction, but it's called the hinge commandment. It's about Sabbath. Let's just talk generally. And then maybe we can get a little bit more practical. But can we just expand upon the significance of that commandment, where it's placed, what it means? All right. So one through three is about loving God, right? There's only one God. Cut out the idols. Don't use the Lord's name in vain. Five through ten, how are we to love one another? Don't murder, steal, etc. And we can't leave, we can't rightly love one another if we're not in this relationship with God. And so this one is rooted not in man's behavior, but this one is rooted in creation, that we are to mimic God. He got all of his work done in six days, which is a part of the commandment. The commandment is not only to rest. The commandment is also to get all your work done. Mm, So you work hard. And then, just as the Lord rested, we are to rest. In Deuteronomy, he's going to say, just as the Lord set this day apart to be holy, we are to set that day apart to be holy. Now think about this. Adam and Eve, first two people ever here on the planet, well, they were created mm-hmm. on the sixth day. So their first full day, they Sabbath. Why? Because we were supposed to bring to him our first and our best. They didn't rest from work. They rested for work. I don't know if you've ever been created. I don't know how how tired it makes you, but I don't think they're tired yet. That's not what it is. It's saying 
without you as preeminent in my life, I am not equipped to do the things that you've called me to Mm -hmm. do. Now, in Exodus, for 400 years, God's children have never had a day off. They've never, they've never, they're slaves. They just are there to mm. produce, never wants to be. And now God calls them out of the Exodus and says two things. One, I need you to trust me. You're going to be an agricultural society. Everybody around you is going to work seven days a week to get all the stuff done. I need you to trust that you can get more done with me in six days than you can with you in seven. Wow. And then, secondly, it's really first, you need me. Mm. More than you need crops, more than you need to do all the work that you've got to do, you need me. <clears throat> and then the sad thing, one of the saddest things, if you go to Israel, one of the great things about this book, man, is we first started talking about it like eight years ago when we went to Israel together. That's right. And we sat in a bunch of these places and we honestly had these kinds of conversations with just, this is what we talk about. <laughs> I really <clears throat> pushed for the podcast to be recorded <laughs> at all of these places in Israel, but. We'll do book two. That's what we'll do. Next time. <laughs> On site. I'm in. <laughs> so then what happens is what the sad thing that happens with the law is people elevate the law as if it is what is to be worshipped, and then religious people come along, and like classic legalism, just like Eve did in the garden, the enemy comes to Eve and says, did God really say? And Eve says, he told us not to eat from that tree or even to touch it. He didn't say anything about touching it. She added some stuff Mm. to God's commandment. That's a very dangerous thing. So now you do things. The laws about the Sabbath now are a heavy burden and yoke upon people, and there is not rest in it. Mm. Mm. We're in Israel, there's two elevators. There's the Shabbat elevator, and there's the Gentile elevator. And you're not allowed to push a button on Sabbath if you're Jewish, because that might be work. So then what happens is, if you get into the Gentile elevator, all the Jewish people jump in your elevator with you and be like, can you hit four? (laughs) Because they're elevator today, this right is now their elevator on Sabbath stops at every floor, so it takes forever. Because you don't want to hit a button oh, to make right. the door open, so they just You're have a program. A and I'm like, so anyway, <laughs> it's, an, it's a great opportunity to share the gospel, right? Sure. Believe in Jesus, you're free to ride the elevators and hit your own button. <laughs> it's not all that's involved, but it at least covers it that. It starts. That's the restart. But it matters, man. It matters. Good. Um, the day, you know, Paul says in Romans, some consider one day more important than the other, but they're all the same to the Lord. But you need a, we all need a 24-hour period where we rest from our work, where we set it apart wholly unto the Lord. I'm not legalistic on what that means. I think it means different things for different folks. Um, it means family. It means refueling with Jesus. Um and it means you're trusting him so that you can do the things you were called to do. It is a gift. This was God's gift to his people. For 400 years, you never had a day off. Mm. Now you're going to be in a rhythm that mimics the rhythm of creation yeah. so that you can be in right step with me. Uh, so can you touch a little? I have a little bit of insider learning. You teach sometimes at our staff meetings. And I love when you talk about work-life balance versus rhythms. Yeah. 
Can you talk a little bit about about that? What the rhythm? Because you mentioned rhythm, so can you just yeah? Expound so upon that? I think balance and pace are a myth. Okay, I don't think you live a balanced life. Jesus said, "No one can serve two masters." Right? I think you, you're sold out to one. And for many years, a bunch of pastors, I would hear them talk about pace. You got to like, you got to run at a pace. And I was like, hold on, hold on. I don't want to like run at at a at mediocrity for the rest of my life. That's not what I want to do. Okay, that's like Mississippi State football. It's never they're never going to win a championship. So sorry if you're listening and you went to Mississippi State. But you don't even you have no hope. So baseball, you'll win. You know they're going to win eight games. They're going to go to a, a bowl, but they're never going to be great. Okay. So we weren't called to mediocrity, man. We were called to work hard, get it all done in six days, and then stop, not slow down for a long time. But God has created us in rhythm. Look at creation, right? Days one, two, and three. He creates the environments that then he, he then fills those subsequent environments, days four, five, and six, and then you take a day off. And the sun rises and sets and the seasons change, and the waves come in, and God has given you this heartbeat that beats at a rhythm. I think this is why music matters so much in the church, because mm. there's a rhythm to it. And what we were created to be is to be in that kind of rhythm with God. Versus, that's different than just having good time management. That's not what we're talking about here. You need daily rhythms, like you got to get your work done, and you need time with him, and you need time with your family. You need weekly rhythms. There's a Sabbath. You need seasonal rhythms. You need annual rhythms. These things are important to be in step with him. That's good. Charles, anything you would add about Sabbath? Only that as I'm sitting here listening to Joby talk, I'm once again convicted that I don't do it very well. Same. I know that's not your intention, but I... <laughs> well, I don't either. Confession. I'm a I mean, better talker than doer. I just, I'm looking at it, and I'm... I look at, you know, last year I wrote three books. Probably didn't Sabbath all that well. I can think of about 20 or 30 or 40 Sabbaths that I worked. Mm -hmm. And man was not made for the Sabbath, but Sabbath for man. That's right. And, you know, here I am, a, a lifelong believer. Like I grew up in a house with the Lord. And if I really believe that he is who he says he is, then I will consciously carve out that time. And I will dedicate it to him and just spend it in whatever that looks like and whatever the day of the week that is. And I'm not trying to be religious and it's got to mm -hmm. be whatever. It's the, it's, the, it's the traditions of man that make the word of God of no effect. So we can turn a tradition into something that then takes over and nullifies the word of God, which is actually the only thing on planet Earth that causes that thing to be void, right. which is our traditions. Yeah, And you think God's pleased because you didn't push the button on the elevator. Correct. I, but I, I look at it and I think uh, there's got to be a better way for me to Sabbath. One of the things I did do last year, and I'm not doing this to toot my own horn, but it did help. I took my iPhone and I forwarded the phone calls to a burner phone, like a flip phone. So people can get me, but I will leave my phone and I just take this burner flip. My kids call it the Jason Bourne phone. <laughs> and I just take this Jason Bourne and I'll go work. And so if Christy needs me or the boys need me, they can call me. Mm. But I'm not sitting there like That's a good. monkey with a Rubik's Cube trying to answer every dadgum text that comes in because I'm immediately accessible. Mm. One of the biggest hurdles in my life to Sabbath 
is that thing's entrance and immediacy into my life. My agent is really good at this. His name's Chris, and he's he he's done this for years. But Saturday, about three o'clock, he cuts off his phone. Monday morning, he cuts it back on. Hmm. And he's just like, that's just my that's my time with my wife. It's my time with the Lord. I'm just I'm just checking out, and I could do better. Mm. Not yeah. be, not for the standpoint of checking the box and doing better, yeah. but because I know the intimacy that happens with the Lord when I do. Yeah, the problem with these things is it it's crushing us on two sides. When you're with people, you're not actually with the people that you're with because you're available, you think, to the entire world. So I'm not actually present with you. And then when I am alone, I'm not actually alone with the Lord because you have availability to me. That's right. It's killing us from both sides. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yes. It's almost become like an appendage of us. And we feel, people feel low-level anxiety when they're away from it or if it's in another room. So it is for sure the thing, I feel like. Step one of Sabbath for anyone trying to initiate a discipline it is. It's it's getting away from that. Doesn't mean being alone by yourself physically, but turning that off for the a thing second. it does for me. I'm just going to be like gut level honest. Maybe you all are different, but the thing it does for me is it feeds some subconscious need or something that I have that I, makes me feel important because people are trying to get me. It's good. And when I turn it off, I'm saying I'm willing to give up that immediate feeling of importance. And go spend time at the feet of my father. And that's a, it's an idol. It's an absolute idol. Sure. Talking about this commandment, it's also, I find it interesting how deeply rooted it is in identity preceding activity, because it is what you're saying. You have to make the conscious choice that I'm not going to choose the activity that may lead to a raise, a promotion, a new relationship, and I am going to choose to sit and be just be loved, be in identity. I think the I think the the fundamental understanding of Sabbath comes down to trust. Again, it was an agricultural society. There's always work to be done. Do I trust God to provide for me and my family, or do I trust me to provide for me and my family? Amen. Something that. Um, Gretchen and I were talking about this with JP. Again, he's 16 years old. Wednesday night, he loves to go to youth, which is great. We never have to twist his arm or whatever. Mm-hmm. And now, because he's got a license and all that, he wants to go to Al's Pizza and get a piece of pizza before. And I will fund that no problem, right? He meets his buddies up there, his disciple group leader, all the things. So he's like, Dad, can I get some money to get some food? Cool. I give him the money. He goes. He's taking his sister, so I'm like, you better do you better feed her or this is never happening again, you know? Right. All right. So when he gets home, he has no problem giving me the change. Why? Because he trusts there's more where that came from. He trusts that I'm his dad. I love him. He's being obedient. This is how this things work. That's a part of what Sabbath is. Do I trust that God is going to provide for me? That's really good. Or do I think I need to? And including the raises, the all the things that you think you're gonna go get. Sure. You will never promote you, only God promotes. That's right. It's all his anyway. He he's deciding who gets what, when and where. Not you. We go off on a long rabbit trail, but your statement, you will never promote you. Only God promotes you. 
flies in the face of everything social media tells us. Because we think if we, and I get pressure for this, like, you know, they're telling me I need to be more on whatever, okay? The world tells us you have to promote yourself. Mm -hmm. You have to scratch and claw and get more this number and more that number and do this certain number. and, And yet in the kingdom of God, you can't find any place in Scripture where somebody promoted themselves and the Lord honored it. Now you can find people who stepped in and followed the Lord in obedience. For sure. In fact, you see the opposite, right? Joseph is in front of Pharaoh, and Pharaoh says, I hear you have the gift of interpreting dreams. And he goes, I do not. <laughs> Only God most high. Hmm. And he gets promoted. <laughs> Should have been a death sentence because Pharaoh thought he was God. That's what that means. Hmm. And so he, he trusts God. That's really good. Before we close out, any any final thoughts on Mount Sinai and yes. Sword Moses? I know. Yes, <laughs> for this time. Um, New Testament, rich young ruler, God comes to Jesus and says, what must I do to be saved? That's the misunderstanding of why the law was given. And then Jesus goes, you know the commandments. And the guy goes, check. I've covered them all. And Jesus goes, yeah, there's only one thing you're lacking. And what he's lacking is surrendering to Jesus. You know? Now, it's wrapped around the axle of his money. That's his idol. That's his God. That's what he's worshiping, not Jesus. And he goes away sad. So when you hear, when you read about or hear a sermon about the Ten Commandments, the goal is not to run out and white knuckle this thing and I got to get better at commandments because that's like, that's sin management. Sin management is not the gospel. That's like the grabbing the beach ball, trying to hold it under the water. You can only do it for a while, depending on how strong you are, how big the waves are, how much sunscreen's on your fingers. (laughs) And the problem is when it gets out of your control, the beach ball never just like gradually rises back. It blows up in your face. And so Paul in Romans 3 says... No one will be declared righteous be declared righteous by works of the law. But there is a righteousness that has been manifest apart from the law. This is Jesus Christ, that he came to fulfill the law 100% and then to take the place for all of the lawbreakers for whoever would believe. The if you've ever been to the doctor and the doctor does tests and comes out with a diagnosis, that is what the law is. So I got good news and I got bad news. Here's the bad news. I've looked at the law. Your diagnosis is death. But I've got good news. There is a cure. It is an alien righteousness. Jesus has come to fulfill the law in your place, take the punishment for our broken law in our place, to die in our place, and to call you unto himself. Hopefully, that's what the law leads us to. And I think you end this chapter with a salvation invitation. For sure. Which, again, I said this last week, too. I had never heard of Abraham and Isaac preached and close with the salvation invitation, and we talked about why that is, it only makes sense to end it there. And so tell us why it only makes sense here. I mean, you just talked about it, but... So in that section, Romans 3, by the way, that paragraph of Romans 3... Um. Martin Luther said it's the most important paragraph that's ever been written in the history of humanity. Mm. I think Romans 8 is the greatest chapter of any book ever. Romans 3 at the end 
is the greatest paragraph ever because he says, for the wages of sin is death, but this gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. That is, that is what we, we have been offered through Jesus, that we, we break the law. In fact, if you go all the way back to the Old Covenant, man, in the Holy of Holies is the Ark of the Covenant. In the Ark of the Covenant is the law of God, the broken law of God. Mm-hmm. God looks down on that broken law. And so one day a year on the Day of Atonement, the high priest consecrates himself, sheds the blood of a lamb, takes that blood and sprinkles it, covers the mercy seat. It's called the hilasterium. Literally, it's translated propitiation, which means the payment that satisfies. Why? So that when God looks, he does not see his broken law. He sees the shed blood of a lamb to cover over the broken law. Then John the Baptist shows up on the scene talking to a group of people who have been doing that thing, shedding bloods of lambs and sprinkling over the broken law of God for thousands of years. And then he says, Behold, the Lamb of God who's come to take away the sin of the world. Not another Lamb of God who covers the sin of a particular group of people for a year, and you got to repeat it next year. But here he is. The lawgiver, the law keeper, is going to give his life for us lawbreakers that we could know him. That's good. Any final thoughts you want to add, Charles? Let's take it from the standpoint of just knowing our enemy for a minute. And we know we talked about that last time with the enemy giving us a performance-based identity versus the, the, the identity that the Father gives us. Well, we live in a fallen world, and the enemy hears this gospel preached, and then I think just twists it so that some of the some of the gospel that is preached today is this hammering us with following the law, following the law, following the law, and even us Bible believing Christians can get caught up in putting the law ahead of the relationship with the one who gives the law. But Jesus comes around and he says, "If you love me, obey my commands." He says this before any of the New Testament is written. So what is he talking about? We can get Axel wrapped on that. But the thing that he's pointing to is obedience-based following of the law. We, we, it's love-based. We, we do it because we love him. And out of that love, obedience to the law follows. It's not the reverse. Right. It's not, it's not following the law that, le- that leads to life. It's life with and through the Father that because I love him, I'm going to walk with him in such a way that I, I continue to give my heart to my wife, mm-hmm. that, I, that I desire to be faithful to my wife because for, my, from, for no other reason than the Lord says, this is how you need to do life with your wife. Mm-hmm. I don't know. It's just the... It, the it's the, it's the flip side of it. When Jesus said, if you love me, obey my commands, I think that probably caused a lot of people to scratch their head. Mm-hmm. And they went, it was a light bulb moment that said, that means I do it because I love him. Mm-hmm. They probably had not had that thought. That's good. Yeah, like my relationship with, Jesus, with Gretchen, sorry. I, I don't not cheat on her so that she'll be my wife. That is a workspace righteousness. That will not work. 
I love her, therefore I'm faithful to her. Mm -hmm. These are two different things. Right. Yeah. You know? Sure. We ask at the very beginning of this chapter, so who tells you who you are? So here's a tactic of the enemy, man. Let's take the seventh commandment. Thou shalt not commit adultery. And you break that one. And the enemy gets in your ear mm -hmm. and says, you are an adulterer. And then Jesus comes along and goes, no, you're not. And I've had people at our church go, uh, but yeah, I am. Mm -hmm. It's the biggest thing that's ever happened in my life. And Jesus goes, no, it's not. When you believed in me and I watched the way you're saying, that was the biggest thing. You see, what the enemy tries to do, he actually tries to use the law of God to define you by your scars and wounds. That's right. And the good news of the gospel is he comes along and Jesus says, no, 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 how about you'll be defined by mine? That's right. So you're not your past. You're not the broken law. You're not your sin. You're not your affair. You're not your abortion. You're not your addiction. You're not your divorce. You're not your relational status. You're not your political party. Those are not, that's not primarily what you are, who you are, because the, the enemy wants to label you, because then this world doesn't have to deal with you. It just deals with the label that just slapped on you. That's good. But Jesus, Jesus calls you by your name because only Jesus gets to tell you who you are. That's where the freedom is. So much freedom. Charles, will you pray for us in closing? Lord Jesus, we love you. We thank you for today. We thank you, Father, that uh, we have been crucified with you. And it's no longer we who live, but you who live in and through us and are our faults and our failures and our all the places that we've broken, all of your commands, they're not the things that identify us. And so for anybody out there that's wrestling with, this is my sin, it's the biggest thing to happen to me, Jesus would say to you, son or daughter, you have been crucified with me. If you are in me, then I have taken that and I have washed it away and I have wrapped you in a robe of righteousness. So Father, for anybody wrestling with how they feel like their sin or shame disqualifies them, would you just wrap them in your hand and would you just love on them? Lord, we thank you for your or just spending time with us today, for washing us in your word. We love you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, thank you guys for your time today. It was so good, so rich, and I know it's going to disciple a lot of people. It discipled me today, so thank you. And we'll be back next week to talk about Chapter 3.